Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello. It's the week ending the 18th of August. I'm James Harding and I'm joined by a tortoise team that includes Kat Nealon, who covers politics, Alexi Mostras, who looks into technology and the weird, wonderful, worrying world of the internet, and Matthew Barson, who chairs tortoise and was previously the US ambassador to the UK. I'm looking forward to this. Hello, all. Hello. 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 I, I rather suspect that no one is going to pitch a line item from Aviva's half-year results as the story that should lead the news this week. But before we get going, I do just want to flag it up because I think it's a signal from one of Britain's biggest insurers. They saw a 58% increase in people buying private healthcare insurance policies in the first half of the year. In fact, 170,000 individual and corporate customers in the UK have signed up for healthcare policies in the past 12 months. And it just strikes me that for all the talk that the NHS is the UK's secular religion and that only a couple of years ago we were all standing on our doorsteps on Thursday evenings applauding doctors and nurses, people in the UK in more than marginal numbers are voting with their feet. And earlier this year at Tortoise we started reporting this. In May we found that one in five businesses and one in four big businesses are looking to offer employees private healthcare policies. In other words, what we're talking about is not backdoor privatisation of the NHS, but private provision next door, a move to a parallel system that looks a lot more like healthcare provision in the United States. And so I know this falls somewhere between a we-told-you-so story, not particularly attractive, or unevidenced alarmism, even less likeable. But I do think it's worth mentioning because this is one of those examples where what the public does may be different from what it says it's doing, certainly what it says in polls. And sooner or later, the politics, particularly on the right, particularly among the Conservatives, is going to try and catch up. So it seems to me this is a story for a newsroom like ours that's not just interested in sudden events, but creeping developments. With that, welcome to the Tortoise News Meeting. Three suspected spies for Russia have been arrested in the UK, the BBC can reveal. Dozens of migrants are feared dead after their boat was found drifting off West Africa. It's thought they were heading for the Canary Islands, often seen as a route to the EU. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. Bradley Cooper is being accused of Jew face for wearing a fake nose in a movie. England are through to the World Cup final where they will meet Spain next weekend. It's been a brilliant performance in the end. 
Matthew, Alexi and Kat, there are a few stories around this week that have sucked up a lot of oxygen. The Georgia case, the fires in Hawaii and Canada, Bulgarians said to be spying in North Old West London. But what are we missing? You're each going to pitch the story that you think really should be leading the news. And we're going to discuss them, try and figure out what we know, make sense of what they mean. At the end, I'll try and make a call on which one leads the news. So with that, let's get going. Long story short, in a single sentence, what have you got? Cat, why don't you go first? Mine is 10,000 lives on a knife edge. Matthew? Not minding the queue. <laughs> Alexi? Um, the space dictator. Um, by the way, I should just say before we get it stuck into each of your three stories, if you're listening and through the course of this you think you're missing the story that really should be leading the news, please do get in touch with us. You can just email us. Um, at, and as you, I hope, have heard, we really do try and follow up on the stories that you suggest should be leading the news. Our email is newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Very simple. With that, Cat. 10,000 lives on the line. So this is the story uh, out of Northern Ireland that the data of 10,000 officers and staff who work for the Police Service of Northern Ireland, also known as the PSNI, were accidentally leaked online, putting those individuals and their families at risk of identification. The data includes surnames and the first initial, but also the rank and grade of every officer in the PSNI and where they're based and which unit they work in. So although there were no home addresses, which is obviously a good thing, there's a lot of very uh, uh, a lot of data by which people can be identified. Um, and it was mistakenly published online in response to a freedom of information request uh, for about three hours. What they didn't realise was that the, uh, the, the document that was published had a link that went off to some highly classified information. Some of these officers have been embedded with MI5, uh, with various intelligence agencies, the riot squad, um, close protection, bodyguard duties for senior politicians and so on. Sorry, Kat, can you just explain how it happened? You say it was mistakenly published online. How did that happen? Well, it looks to be just plain human error and... I, uh, you know, they, they are obviously investigating what has happened further, but um, the, the concern is effectively the genie is out of the bottle and um, that data was removed after after being online for three hours. But in that time, it was already downloaded and has been passed on WhatsApp and so on. Well, the only reason I just wanted to press that point is in all the coverage, it's been referred to as a data breach and... I presume that it was a hack, that it was a question about the security of a central data system. It's a mistake. Yes, but it is. it amounts to the biggest breach in Northern Ireland's history. And it comes at a very kind of sensitive time for Northern Irish uh, security, with the, the terror threat having been raised too severe in February following the attempted murder, the shooting of a, a detective chief inspector. So um, Northern Ireland's police chief, uh, Simon Byrne, said that they were now confident that the uh, data set was in the hands of dissident Republicans. And it is their planning assumption that they will use this list to generate fear and uncertainty, as well as intimidating or targeting officers and staff. And in fact, that has already begun. So uh, earlier this week, 
Jerry Kelly, Sinn Féin's policing spokesman and a member of the Stormont Assembly, uh, said that a number of documents had been posted onto a, a wall, a physical wall near his office. Um, that included a photo of himself and a statement that read, Jerry, we know who your mates are now, and a section of the leaked documents. Um, not the names, but he said there was a su- substantial number of the details from the leak. And uh, Jerry Kelly said that... Um, as well as intimidating him and the people who's who who are identifiable, that the intent was uh, to make clear that they had the details. He described it as a very real threat to the officers and civilian staff involved. Um, now, there's been quite a lot of uh, sort of response to this. Obviously, um, uh, the chair of the Northern Ireland Policing Board, Deirdre Toner, told BBC Belfast it was a catastrophic event uh, with uh, cause for a very grave concern, and has refused to express confidence in Burn. Um, uh, Roy McComb, a former deputy director of uh, the National Crime Agency, told the Times he, he he initially he struggled to grasp the gravity of the situation, but described it as nothing short of a disaster. He said this is a gift for paramilitaries and organised crime gangs, a treasure trove of intelligence information which will allow officers to be targeted and intimidated for a very long time to come. And there have also been quite a lot of of sort of responses from un named PSNI officers who are now kind of living in very real uh, sense of a threat to their their lives and and their families' lives. There haven't been many attacks on uh, police officers in Northern Ireland, but since 2009, two officers have been killed. And as I said earlier this year, there was this attempt on uh, another uh, officer who is left with life-changing injuries. So it is something which I think people are very, very attuned to the risks of and the genie having come out of the bottle now there is no end in sight to this so you can't just say in six months time oh well this was an awful thing we've got through it um these people will now unless they change their names and they move home they will be at risk of some kind of intervention from paramilitaries and distance now forever Matthew, what do you think? I, two thoughts come to mind, Kat. One is, um, as James was asking, I mean, is the fact that this was, I guess, two and a half thoughts, that this was a mistake, does that prevent anyone from, I mean, it doesn't change the threats and the fear that, that you described so well, but the idea that, that this is somehow the, the person who runs PSNI's fault, I mean, I know it happened on his watch, but is there any sort of cutting of slack that mistakes happen. I would imagine working in any organization, I know from one I used to work at, FOIA requests aren't exactly greeted with positive body language in general. They just seem as a game of gotcha. Not that, I mean, you know, the theory is good, but in practice, it isn't very fun to have to comply with these things, I would think. And now this, what will that do to availability of data from other organizations? And then I'm just curious if there's anything to be learned and from what happened, what was it, 13 years ago, certainly 10 years ago with the big WikiLeaks dump and all the names of people, not to do with Northern Ireland, but other countries and the very similar fears that those um, government employees and their families were under. And did that materialize to be as bad as people thought? 
or not, or will no one tell us because of the sensitivity? Alexi, I just wanted to say that I, I, on this story, I, I do agree with Kat that for me, the most interesting thing is about the human side of it. It's, it's kind of an extraordinary psychological situation. If you have 10,000 people, as I understand it, whose names were on this list. So each of those 10,000 people, like purely because of the numbers, it's unlikely, probably, that each of those people will face a substantial risk. But they do face a risk. So what do you do if you're in that situation? If you're, you know, changing your name, moving house and all of that, such a sort of drastic uh, event to put you, you and your family through on the basis of a risk that is not not substantial purely, but what, what, what do you do? Like, how do you think about that as a family? It's the kind of you don't know, do you? You're, you know that someone knows and you don't know whether whether or when they will act. And I think that's the thing that I find most psychologically kind of terrifying because, uh, well, I'm not very good at anticipation slash dread at the best of times. Um, and and if you don't know that, you know, there could be a knock at your door, I just, I, how do you live with that? And I should also just say there is a sort of personal connection to this because the Neelands are from Ireland, as you may be able to tell. And my uh, great grandfather was a police officer at the start of the 1900s. And when when the sort of initial troubles happened in the sort of uh, late teens, early 20s, he was working for the uh, Royal Irish Constabulary and um, he was targeted and he was shot, it, shot in the hand and the house that he lived in with my grandfather, who was a child at the time, was burnt down and they had to flee to England and change the spelling of the surname and all the rest of it. So um, it's not a, a sort of completely abstract thing for me and for countless other people, I suppose. Um, Kat, thank you. Matthew, let's go to your story, Not Minding the queue. Not Minding the queue. This is a story that comes from an article I read at the beginning of the week from I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Grace Seegers, who's a staff writer at The New Republic. And when I saw the headline, I thought it was two years after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I just figured it was like all the other stories I'd read on that subject, which is many of them either a look into the very real challenges still existing in Afghanistan or Republican candidates um, giving President Biden a hard time about what he did and how he did it. But this wasn't about that at all. It was about what life is like for the 80,000 Afghans who were given a special status by the Biden administration two years ago in the aftermath and during the withdrawal, who were living around the D.C. area, Washington, D.C. area. Um, and the two years isn't just an anniversary that journalists are noting. It's, it's when their special status expires. And so they have to be granted it again, which Biden has the Biden administration has done, but they haven't all of them been informed that they're in this new status. And if you had started a different status, namely trying to get permanent residency another way during your first two years, you've been told by smart people who know this better than you if you're a newly arrived Afghan, that you shouldn't apply for the second thing because it'll jeopardize this new, better thing you're trying to do. And so these poor women and men and families caught up in this stuff. And the reason I think it's interesting, um, well, actually, I'm not going to use the word interesting. On the Monday news meeting, for listeners who listened to that great session, James, you said that usually in newsrooms, which I'm usually not part of, stories might be interesting or they might be consequential or they might be revealing. 
and I think there's, and in a good journalist like the ones on this call, good tortoise journalism could make this story interesting, consequential, and revealing um, about what, because it actually has bipartisan support. So you have Republicans, not all Republicans, but Republican senators, Democratic senators, all agreeing. Many of these people served and helped the U.S. military during the time in Afghanistan. So if you think of the concentric circles of objectionability, or that's sort of a negative way of putting it, but this is a incredibly, the subset of that 80,000 are people who worked for the government. They can't get a good time. And I'm haunted by this one quotation that I want to read, but before doing so, what is our swearing policy here on the news meeting? Okay. It's okay. I'm getting a thumbs up from Lewis. Okay. Here it goes. So this is one of the many volunteers and agencies who have swung into support these families. And you've got the Lutheran something or others, I can't remember the name, um, on the religious side. But then you have a number of military veterans organizations who've really stood up to try to advocate for, for this stuff. And this is a quote from, I think he is a veteran uh, volunteer who's helped. So he says, um, what this lack of communication results in is our volunteers working throughout the night to clean up the messes that come from a contractor or U.S. government employee just not checking their fucking tone or their cultural appropriateness or just the accuracy of the message, he said. The communication piece is simultaneously the most important thing and the thing that has caused so much harm. And I can imagine a tortoise, great podcast, deep dive into this, to hear these voices, to hear the systemic breakdowns that are happening, and that could actually be fixed. So Matthew, so I'm really caught by this story, because as you know, we've had the same issues in the UK. Um, initially, complete disregard for those people. This happened first with Iraqi volunteers and then with Afghans who had worked directly with British armed forces or, you know, coalition governments, and then looked stranded in, as it was, Iraq and then Afghanistan. Then a lot of great language about a welcoming nation and setting up um, uh, a proper welcome for people uh, who make the journey to the UK. And then these stories where what you see is a much rougher experience arriving often in communities that set up but that come to feel like ghettos places that are at one remove from the rest of society and so I'm really torn by this story because on the one hand it feels exactly as you say interesting consequential revealing it feels as though it tells you something deep about the character and conduct of the country on the other hand it feels like a bureaucratic snafu or um, a, a problem of miscommunication. It's not a problem of intention. It's not a problem of policy. It's, it's about the way in which a, a decision is communicated from the people who make it to the people who receive it. Um, and that doesn't necessarily feel like the kind of thing that leads the news. Kat, what do you think? So initially I kind of thought, oh, this is an anniversary story, which I kind of always have some scepticism around. Uh, but I see I see what Matthew's getting at in terms of, you know, the kind of uh, distinction be 
but you know kind of the two two year phase kind of dropping off and and then that kind of creating headaches i do agree with you though james i do think it in that framing it becomes a sort of issue of bureaucracy which is a harder sell um looking at it from a uk perspective um there obviously a lot of the um afghan uh, refugees here have gone into hotels and um are now um sort of coming off the, the sort of uh, process which means that they could be classified as homeless and I think that could be a sort of interesting route into it, which is, you know, kind of what do you do with, um, you know, kind of with this? Uh, it's obviously not as many people in the UK as it is in America, but uh, 20,000 people, let's say, who um, aren't able to work and and sort of aren't really the responsibility of or, or the you know the kind of responsibility for them has shifted from the central government to local government at a time when local government doesn't have much funding, um, and you know obviously that you know whether they're categorised as homeless doesn't necessarily mean they'll be living on the streets, but some of them may well end up there. Um, is that a sort of beginning of a crisis that is about to sort of unfold in which we see, you know, thousands of, of Afghans um, in sort of crisis accommodation or or, or, or rough sleeping? Um, so I think I think it it feels like it maybe is the beginning of a story, um, but I'm not sure that it's got to the point at which we would necessarily have something that would lead the news. Alexi, what's your view? I think I quite like it. You know, I mean, if you think about like the news limelight focusing on specific events and then kind of moving off them very quickly, that's where a lot of shit happens in the world, right? Like two years ago, there was lots of focus on this and the evacuations. And now the limelight is on somewhere else. So I think there is a space for someone, some, an organisation like us to say, okay, well, we're, we're really going to follow it through and we're really going to see where this kind of optimistic policy ended up in practice. Well, listen, let's, let's, let's take a beat um, and then we're going to come to the third and final story, The Space Dictator. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker, We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. The risks posed by AI range from bias in decision-making to misinformation and the misuse of personal information, all at an unprecedented scale. Nearly a quarter of UK businesses understand that the regulatory landscape is changing fast, and nearly half are tracking new regulatory guidance to be responsive to emerging best practice. The EY Responsible AI Service helps organisations innovate safely, 
providing confidence that AI and generative AI technologies are developed and managed ethically, transparently and sustainably, and that potential regulatory and reputational risks are identified and mitigated. Discover how you can create a better working world with AI by going to ey.ai. Alexi, who or what is the space dictator? So the space dictator is uh, perhaps unsurprisingly Elon Musk. And I want to talk about a couple of stories that have happened recently that speak to basically his unparalleled power, both on Earth and above it. Um, So Elon Musk, world's second richest man, I think at the moment, he owns Twitter, Tesla, and a company called SpaceX. And what happened this week was that the Washington Post reported that X, which is the new name for Twitter, had deliberately been slowing the speed with which users could access some clicks. So if you went on Twitter and you clicked on the New York Times, for instance, there was like a five second delay and then the web page kind of um, came up. And it was the same with Facebook and it was the same with Blue Sky and it was the same with Instagram and it was the same with Substack. And the thing that kind of draws all these like companies together that were throttled is that they are either direct competitors of Elon Musk, like Blue Sky, or they are news organizations that Elon Musk is cross with, like the New York Times. And you might not think that a five second delay is very significant, but like it really, really is. Like in a world where people have so much access to so much information, you delay for a couple of seconds, people move on to other things. So it was a real kind of commercially aggressive move. And it was just a move that was done like based on Musk's own kind of commercial bias. And that was interesting in itself. But for me, the reason why it's a really, really important story is because it ties in with a New York Times investigation that came out like 10 days ago, um, which was all about Musk's new, um, or not so new, but like relatively new, like Um, space-based internet system called Starlink. So lots of different satellites are orbiting around the Earth. They've all been put up there by by Elon Musk. And then they provide internet to parts of the world that have never had it before. And it's an amazing technology. But what the New York Times found was that half, half of all the satellites that are active now in space are owned and controlled by this one guy. And that sort of power over space-based internet has allowed him to have huge influence in major geopolitical affairs like the Ukraine war. So at the start of the Ukraine invasion, uh, Ukraine defense officials appealed to Musk to say, look, you've got to give us Starlink. Russia has knocked out our, our normal internet system. And Musk did that. But then at a certain point, he said, no, no, that's that's enough. He, he, he shackled uh, Starlink for Ukrainian forces that were trying to take back cities which had been captured by Russia. Um, and so the, the sort of decisions that you would normally expect to be made by the US Department of Defense or the Ukrainian uh, leadership were being made by this one guy. And you can see that that's a pattern that's going to like repeat itself in countries like Taiwan, who have like deliberately not done a deal with Starlink because they're worried about Elon Musk's ties to China. So suddenly you see the world of communication, which is pretty much like the most preeminent commodity on Earth. And you see that one guy is like 
absolutely in control over over so much of it. And for me, it's really it's it, it's really worrying, and it and it calls into question like fundamental questions of like how you should you treat a social media network? Should it be allowed to shackle competitors, or should it be treated like a commodity? Should you have net neutrality applied not just to like internet service providers, but now to social media networks. Um, Alexi, I don't know whether you heard, but a week or two ago, we had one listener, Gavin, who I think was from Hampshire, wrote in to say exactly this. So you spent a lot of time talking about uh, Twitter and ex-branding, but actually, if you look at the extent to which Musk is amassing power, particularly through something like Starlink and the real-world impacts on the battlefield in Ukraine... Um, and I think that New York Times story pointed originally to exactly this point. Uh, Ukrainian general saying, has the US Defense Department made an assessment of the uh, power and impact of Elon Musk? You, you can see how that story captures the imagination of certain people. The, the challenge, I think, uh, that I'm trying to wrap my head around, because obviously I find it absolutely fascinating. The challenge, I think, with that story is how does it land as a news story that signals all the things that you're saying it signals in terms of power, influence, relationship with government, when, if you like, the nose of the story, the lead of it, is a five-second delay on a link from X to the New York Times. How, How do you make that lead? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably about taking a step back and seeing things in the round. So you're not just talking about a five second delay and you're not just talking about Twitter. I think to kind of really understand Musk, you need to do what the reader who wrote in said and look at him as a whole. And if you look at the power that he has been shown to wield over the last month, it's worrying for two reasons. It's worrying not only because there are a whole different set of areas where he can wield that power, number one, but number two, he's Elon Musk. He's like, crazy. And he seems to have wielded this power in a really kind of mercurial and subjective way. So if you take both together, that's concerning. I was watching Justice League with my kids uh, the night before last. And there's one moment where The Flash asks Batman uh, what his superpower is. And Bruce Wayne says, I'm rich. And there's something in this, the combination of what Musk said there's this tweet that Musk put out uh, earlier this year, which I don't think anyone has taken as seriously as he's taken it, which is, he said, between Tesla, Starlink and Twitter, I probably have more real-time data than anyone in the world. And that combination of information and wealth, Tesla transportation, Starlink communication, Twitter expression, or X now expression, you think to yourself, that is an incredible concentration of power that in our system goes largely unchecked. Kat, what do you think of it? I think it, th- this idea of the, the the three sort of industries that he's involved in being linked up is, is such an interesting one because we tend to think of monopolies as something that needs to be kind of guarded against, but within their own industries. And actually what we're seeing here is kind of a, a real kind of example of why we need to to sort of better sort of reform that that notion and make it kind of modern because data spreads across all industries and once you have the leading sort of um businesses in in kind of a few areas then it doesn't really matter and you've got that kind of monopoly of information 
And I do agree with um, Alexi and his second framing. If you think about how mercurial Elon Musk is in deciding who has access to 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 what he owns and runs and and how he kind of decides um who's in and who's out um that's the kind of that's the kind of uh the the way into the story is this is not necessarily um a calculated thing it's sometimes quite whimsical but the fact that it has the kind of real world impacts like his decision about whether ukraine military has access to starlink kind of you know demonstrates just how powerful he is houston we have a problem that should have been my headline (laughs) (laughs) um look these are all such profoundly different stories and obviously we're at a time when we need to think about the impact on people's lives on the shape of society each of them tell you something very different Let's have a go on what we think should lead the news. Kat, why don't you go first, assuming you don't do the PSNI story? Which one would you choose? Well, obviously, I think that is the most important one. Um, <laughs> but uh, leaving leaving my story aside, I think it's going to be Alexi's story. But maybe the data dictator rather than the space dictator would be the way to do it. Matthew? Uh, I agree with Kat. Um, I think Alexi's story uh, should lead. And I also like Kat's tweak on, on data in place of space. Alexi, I, I, I would I would go for Kat's story. Um, I think that the the fallout and the consequences, uh, psychologically and practically, uh, are are really significant. All right, this is really a difficult one. Honestly, I find it difficult partly because to be slightly old school and a stickler for news, the reality is that there's only one story, which is Kat's. Cats is an actual story. Something's happened. It has real-world consequences. It tells you something about a fragile world that largely goes underreported. In that sense, it's the whole package. It's a real story. Strangely, Matthew and Alexi's story, to my mind, are leads. They're both invitations to go and investigate further. The point that Matthew made that actually I find most fascinating and most widely undercovered by journalism is the point about tone, about the way in which a government agency or a large organisation can communicate to people and poison the well of goodwill by by getting the tone wrong. That's something incredibly difficult to capture in news, but is so much of where the problem lies in society. And for that reason, I'd be quite tempted to put it at the top of the running order because it tells you something about the way the world really works that's not often captured in uh, headlines or speeches. But personally, the story that intrigues me the most is the power of Musk. I think we live in an age of an incredible power gap. It was one of the reasons we founded Tortoise was to try to understand how we bridged that. And Musk seems to me exhibit A now, even more so than someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who was the focus of attention three, four years back. Elon Musk's power is a real challenge to the way in which societies work. And it feels to me as though even something small like a delay on the link from a social media platform to a provider of information shows the way in which you can, to your own agenda, use that power. And the case that's been highlighted in Ukraine of Starlink being used in some battlefield arenas, but not others, on Musk say so, seems to me to be an extraordinary piece of geopolitical power that's not being challenged. And my 
real worry is that we're going to rely on the same old system, which is a system whereby politicians make regulations, regulators want to be seen to be fulfilling the mandate given to them by politicians. And as a result, we don't have a system that, if you like, looks out for the best interests of society, for the public goods, but looks out for fulfilling, for fulfilling um, the requirements of regulators, and they're going to be inadequate, and we're seeing them as being inadequate now. So for that reason, my running order would be the data dictator, PSNI, a mistake that leading to real-world fears, and the failure to be as welcoming as Operation Afghan Welcome purported to be. For, that would be my running order this week. Woohoo, I didn't come last. <laughs> for those of you scoring at home, I have a clean sheet. Of coming third. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever... Uh, my sheet has no votes on it. <laughs> I've I've never come first. I'm I'm yet to get a gold. To be clear, as as most of you who've ever listened to the news, watched the news, or read the news, you'll know that the thing that always speaks to you most is something halfway down the running order, buried at the bottom of page seventeen. So that's where the glory lies. That's true. Listen, thank you, Matthew. Uh, thank you, Cat. Thank you, Alexi. Thank you, most of all, for listening. Again, I'm just going to make the point. We'd love to hear from you. It's one of these things when we started Tortoise, this idea that you would be slow, but also open, that we'd try and make sure that everything you did was uh, open to question and suggestion. And so please do come back to us with an idea that you think is better than any of the ones that we've got. Newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Do get in touch and we'll pick that up next week. Have a very good weekend. Tortoise. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Safe, efficient and reliable railways help to keep us all connected, thanks to Network Rail. Yet, maintenance on the railways is a risky and sometimes fatal business. At Network Rail, two previous attempts to invigorate its track worker safety programmes had failed, leaving employees feeling sceptical that the organisation could ever get railway safety right. Since 2019, EY teams have worked with Network Rail to deliver a transformation that improved safety protocols and changed employee behaviour around safety. Network Rail Rail Hub, a new digital safety platform and app, eliminated inaccurate paper trails and worked offline, so it could be used by workers in remote locations. Since the platform was introduced, near misses affecting maintenance workers on the railways have fallen by 40%. Read the full story at ey.com.